What really happened in 2008? Why does it still matter today? What everyone knows about the global more than financial crisis is completely wrong. Subprime mortgages? Those weren't even the tip of the iceberg. What everyone calls a financial crisis was and remains today still a monetary crisis. And the difference is everything. It's not about subprime mortgages. It's much, much deeper than that. And the truth, they don't want you to know the truth because the truth exposes all the lies and myths underneath. Why should we care? Here we are 15, almost 16 years later since it began, and we're still talking about 2008. Well, most people aren't. Most people think that's a distant memory. They're more concerned about post-2020 conditions, but that's why you need to care. We are still living in the shadow of the 2008 crisis and the silent depression. And that shadow dictates what the 2020s are going to look like. It's not gonna look like the 1970s, more and more, we're getting confirmation it's going to still be like the 2010s, the immediate period following the monetary breakdown in 2008. Low interest rates, those are not stimulus. They are clear, validated, historical signals that associate with depression economics. And as interest rates are going lower right now, they're telling us, we're going back to the 2010s after only a transitory one-time departure 2021 and part of 2022. The background remains the 2008 one, not some difference, not something different, not something meaningfully different. And even central bankers will admit this if you understand what they're saying. They just call it a fancy thing like our star just so they don't have to admit the truth here. They can make it sound like it's not a monetary issue or their problem. But that's why we need to look at the 2008 crisis and understand what it was really about. And the whole thing comes down to it was not a financial crisis. Okay, so what is the difference here? Financial crisis, monetary crisis, it all sounds the same regardless. But there is a crucial, huge, massive, colossal difference between the two. A financial crisis is where you get stupid behavior, asset bubble type behavior, asset valuations get way out of hand, prices go nuts, and eventually what happens? Reality gets imposed and we have to take some economic losses for having re or badly priced a bunch of financial assets. Piece of crap asset prices end up getting priced to reality and people have to take losses for all the foolishness. That's a financial crisis. More, more like a credit crisis, what people are more imagining. We saw that in the dot-com bubble, the SNL period back in the 1980s, the crypto crisis, and the housing bubble. But only one of those, the housing bubble, led to such massive widespread trouble. Why is that? Why is it that the SNL crisis, for example, didn't turn out to be Great Depression 2.0? Why didn't the dot-coms end up being a Great Depression? Because the difference is all about money. Monetary crisis is very different. It goes much further. That's deflation. A monetary crisis is where money dries up, liquidity becomes so bad, even good assets can't be sold for the right price. Rather than rediscovering what crap asset prices should be, 
we no longer are able to perform even basic price discovery. Even good assets have to be discounted because there is not enough money flowing through the system for it to be priced at its actual economic value. That's a huge difference. That's deflation. That's what led to depressions in their, and throughout the early economic history of the United States and around the rest of the world. Money good assets trade at huge discounts because there isn't enough money flowing. It's not money supply, it's money circulation. Money circulation dries up and suddenly everything breaks down. When there isn't enough money flowing through the system, it kind of looks like a financial crisis, but it is much more insidious, much deeper, and much more destructive when it's not just asset bubbles being repriced. It is the monetary system breaking down, forcing all sorts of good things to look like they're bad. And when good things start looking bad, it leads to even more problems that just pile on top, self-reinforcing vicious cycles that spiral out of control. And a monetary crisis like this has the potential to become a permanent change in behavior, a unit root in the terms of econometrics. That's where we really get into the difference. And that's what we're living with right now. It was a monetary crisis and it has been a repeating monetary crisis, these euro dollar cycles that we talk about here at Eurodollar University, which keeps us in that same silent depression period. And it is dictating how the 2020s are going to go. Before we get into what the common explanation for the 2008 crisis is, just one final reminder, Eurodollar University Christmas sale still ongoing for a little bit left here. Some of the best prices we've ever offered on a bundle for the DDA, that's the deep dive analysis, the daily briefing, as well as Eurodollar memberships, all for one low price. There's other deals available too. Check out our Christmas sale while it's still available, eurodollar.university. Of course, what most people know of the 2008 financial crisis, as it's been called, is subprime mortgages. It's easy. It sounds simple. It sounds plausible. It sounds like everything that we remember of that period, because you never were given inside access to what really happened, which I'm going to do in just a moment here. It all started in March 2007. Subprime mortgages became a household word when Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve's new chairman, said... Although the turmoil in subprime mortgage market has created severe financial problems, again, there it is, financial, for many individuals and families, the implications of these developments for the housing market as a whole are less clear. At this juncture, however, Bernanke said, the impact on the broader economy and financial markets of the problems in the subprime market seems likely to be contained. Even the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, I mean, there's the name again, the FCIC, which was convened in the aftermath of the affair, they, in the text of its report, the term subprime appears 806 times. You know what word doesn't, what term doesn't appear even once? Eurodollar. Even though that's what the crisis was all about. Bernanke said subprime was contained, but then guess what? In testimony to the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission itself, he said the following. Prospective subprime losses were clearly not large enough on their own to account for the magnitude of the crisis. It wasn't a credit crisis. Rather, the system's vulnerabilities, together with gaps in the government's crisis response toolkit, were the principal explanations of why the crisis was so severe and had such devastating effects on the broader economy. And the second part of that quote, he's saying, 
we really didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea. We thought this was a simple thing. We'll lower the level of, of interest rates and maybe we'll do some dollar swaps and TAF auction. That'll be, that'll, be, that'll be fully fine. But it wasn't fine. As Bernanke already knew at that time, testifying to the FCIC, as he said in February 2010, this was a global dollar shortage. Here's what he said in 2010. Liquidity pressures in financial markets were not limited to the United States and intense strains in the global dollar funding markets began to spill over to U.S. markets. More a monetary thing, but not a monetary thing in the U.S. or just in the U.S., a global monetary problem. That's how it became a global more than financial crisis. It wasn't the U.S., it wasn't the U.S. dollar, it was how the U.S. dollar system actually works. And that's the thing. As Bernanke said in 2008 in an interview with The New Yorker, they had no idea how this dollar system, this euro dollar system, was put together. But once it started going wrong, because they didn't know how it was put together or how it really worked, they couldn't solve the problem. That's how you had a monetary crisis go nuts and haywire and wreak havoc all over the global system. And he knew this. He knew this right away in early 2000. I'll let you inside what, what officials know, or at least they, part of what they know, and have known all along that they've kept hidden from the public. What I'm going to go through from here on, and, and bear with me here, I'm going to do some quoting here, from, it's from a St. Louis Fed article that appeared in 2009. So the immediate aftermath that puts a lot of information, information that's publicly accessible, it puts a lot of information about what really happened together, the cross-border behavior, the cross-border breakdowns across this Eurodollar system. And it starts out with recognizing the fact that dollars are not strictly a national thing. Money dealers transact in dollar, dollar liabilities of all different forms all over the world because that's what a reserve currency is. A reserve currency is a common medium that must be available in every place around the world. And the euro dollar system over its evolution not only rewrote how money actually works and what forms it takes, it did so in service of this global reserve currency need and did it really, really well, if not too well. That's where the bubble behavior comes in, but the breakdown was not a financial crisis. It went much further. So to St. Louis Fed in 2009, the increased net lending abroad between mid-2007 and mid-2008 is mainly attributable to U.S. offices of European-owned banks lending to their affiliate offices in Europe. Although U.S. banking offices with European parents make up less than one half of U.S. Cro gross cross-border positions, their increased lending more than explains the overall pattern for the first year of the crisis. European-owned offices in the United States generated an outflow of more than $450 billion over the first year of the crisis. Furthermore, almost all of that new lending was to affiliated offices, often the parent office. So U.S. banks, including a whole bunch of Basically, European banks that were opening and operating U.S. branches were borrowing in the United States and sending those funds to their parents in Europe because their parents in Europe 
were having trouble out there in the Eurodollar system. As Bernanke said, intense funding strains outside then spilled over inside the U.S. But at this point, in the first stage of the crisis, it hadn't spilled over all that much. It was as much a European-centered crisis as anything. Whereas 1997-98 was the Asian financial crisis, Asian monetary crisis, the 2008 crisis was a lot like 97-98, except centered more in Europe. And what they're saying here is in the data they're using, which is tick data, they got almost half a trillion dollars that desperate European parent banks were, were begging their U.S. American uh, subsidiaries and branches to send, to borrow in the United States and send over to Europe because they couldn't get it outside in the Eurodollar system. Continuing, in the several years prior to the crisis, many European banks directly or indirectly sponsored more than 100 special purpose vehicles, including stru structured investment vehicles. These vehicles issued hundreds of billions of dollars of asset-backed securities, including ABCP, which is asset-backed commercial paper, into the U.S. market. When asset-backed commercial paper markets froze in the fall of 2007, even though Bill Dudley said that would never happen, European banks not only lost a source of new funding, but also needed to pay off the commercial paper in medium-term notes maturing throughout late 2007 and early 2008 that could not be rolled over in the market. But because many of the assets backing the commercial paper were illiquid, European banks needed other sources of U.S. dollars because they couldn't sell those assets. As those markets for those assets dried up, price discovery disappeared. And so markets for assets that, that used to exist, that made those assets liquid, those started to dry up too. And suddenly what used to be liquid assets are now increasingly illiquid. And if you tried to sell it, prices, bid-ask spreads were huge, prices were going down, and it looked like a financial crisis. But the problem wasn't financial. It wasn't strictly financial. Back to St. Louis. The notion of a dollar crunch in Europe is supported by the fact that net lending to Europe during the first half, first year of the crisis was widespread across many banks, whereas banking flows are usually dominated by the largest banks. The U.S. offices of 30 banks each lent more than $10 billion abroad on net between August 2007 and August 2008. What that meant was, as these European banks were facing a global dollar shortage, they appealed to U.S. banks, as I went over in a recent video on resales, they appealed to U.S. banks as their lifeline. Not the Fed, American banks. I said, hey, I can't get any funding in the commercial paper market. Can you at least give me some backstop liquidity? And U.S. banks said, sure, I'll give you some backstop liquidity, but it's going to cost you and I'm going to need collateral. And it continued from there, this breakdown in the monetary system. Back to St. Louis. The cross-border flows of U.S.-owned banks also showed the severity of the crisis during this period. U.S.-owned banks that had been lending early in the crisis stopped lending. Meanwhile, nearly all securities brokers, even those that had been able to borrow from affiliates early in the crisis, they generated large outflows as their borrowing from foreigners collapsed. These events resulted largely from the breakdown in the market for repos, an important source of funding for many securities brokers. So the evolution of the crisis, it was an interbank bank run. Many of the same symptoms of any traditional bank run, but unfamiliar if you don't see what's actually, actually happening on the inside. We have vast volumes of unsecured lending, including commercial paper, for a whole bunch of purposes that nobody really questioned. 
because during the pre-crisis period, everybody thought the risks of everything was incredibly low. Nothing bad had happened, so nothing bad could happen. Recency bias and a whole bunch of confirmation bias on top. But subprime mortgages lit the fuse. That was the spark that lit the fuse. Suddenly we do we had to re-question or we had to question for the first time all of these assumptions about risks in the system. And so unsecured markets became less reliable because now we're starting to doubt whether or not our assumptions about risk are valid. Unsecured markets start to dry up, forcing all of these European banks at first to find alternatives. And most of those alternatives were repo, collateralized lending. I don't know what's going on with you, Mr. European Bank, so I'll, I'll, I'll bail you out with a repo transaction, but I'm going to need some security because I'm a little more uncertain than I was yesterday. Then we started doubting repo collateral itself. As the markets were becoming more and more illiquid because money stopped circulating through all of these interbank channels, repo collateral was no longer the same type of security because everything depends upon, if you default, I need to be able to seize your collateral and sell it in a dependable, predictable fashion tomorrow. Liquid markets broke down for collateral, so collateral broke down too forcing everybody into a narrower and narrower list of collateral, which created conditions for a disaster. It was a monetary breakdown that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, in fact, and affecting more and more and more parts of the global system. It wasn't just strictly European banks and asset-backed commercial paper. That's where it started and it continued to go. And it continued to go no matter what the Federal Reserve or any other central bank did. That's another thing that we also need to keep in mind. Here I'm going to show you a side-by-side -side comparison of what Ben Bernanke did in describing how the Fed responded to the 2008 monetary crisis and what the, the 1930s Fed said about its own response to the 1930s monetary crisis too. Look at how, look at how they're almost exactly the same. They both lowered interest rates down to zero, which is not a good sign, by the way. They both bought government securities and lay, raised the level of bank reserves. And the results were the same in both cases. Deflationary money. If you didn't know what was going on in the monetary system, because you don't know what the monetary system is, it looks like a financial crisis about subprime mortgages, when in fact it goes far, far beyond that. Because we had this monetary breakdown, a real true deflationary outbreak, the symptoms of it, the causes of it, the implications are not the same as a financial crisis, which is why everybody was so surprised when we didn't get a recovery in the early aftermath period. Why did the Fed have to do QE2 almost right afterward, and then QE3 and QE4? Because it was a permanent breakdown. That's how bad it was. And it was Ben Bernanke, of all people, in the 1980s who warned about the Great Depression. What made the Great Depression great, for lack of a better term here, is that a monetary crisis became a banking crisis that impaired the banking system. But in the euro-dollar way of doing money, money and banking are the same thing. So if you have a monetary crisis, by definition, you also have a banking crisis. The banking crisis became impaired by the monetary crisis, which robbed us of recovery. That is the deflationary background behind the 2010s that the interest rate markets had said, this is a silent depression. 
Low interest rates are always associated with depressionary periods, not the other way around. History has shown that. The interest rate fallacy has been proven over and over again, especially in the 2010s. But here's why it matters. We're living in the silent depression background. And while we got all crazy over 2020 and 2021, COVID pandemic and the government response to it, money printing everywhere. What, what really happened was banks expanded their balance sheets in 2020 and 2021 only for government debt one time and then stopped doing it. So interest rates have been fighting against this narrative of inflation and 1970s repeat the entire time. That's why the curves inverted before the Fed even got started with its rate hikes. Interest rates have been trying to go lower the entire period. They're trying to get back to their 2010s baseline. And the reason they're trying to get back to the 2010s baseline is because we are still living in the aftermath, in the long shadow of a 2008 crisis that was not a financial crisis. But because the 2008 crisis was a deflationary crisis in all the same respects, if not to the same degree as the 1930s, the consequences, the long-run consequences, have been the same as the 1930s, even if no one wants to recognize it. And they continue to this day, despite everything that's happened over the last couple of years. So as interest rates are going down, they are confirming we're still living with 2008, largely because nobody knows what really happened. If you want to go deeper into the silent depression, as my old co-host Emil Kalinowski called it, check out the video link below me. There's tons of evidence and information about it going further than I did in this video here. I thank you very much for joining me. Huge thank you, Eurodollar University members and subscribers. And until next time, Happy New Year. Take care.